take a little bit different tack this morning. Actually, it's a big uh, different tack this morning. There's a big reason for it. In the past, not all books, but a lot of the books we've been studying. I say in the first Sunday, the study to do a background study. Some of the books we've done recently have not done that. For example, Mark, John, those kind of books I have not done those kind of background studies because they're relatively familiar books to us. However, Amos is not one of those books that are familiar to us, right, Jim? We were talking about this morning, we were this morning, or this weekend. It's not one of those books that are necessarily familiar to us today. And so, why don't you go ahead and take your, your Bible turn it, because Although, primarily this morning, we're going to be spending our time in the background for a little some passages. So, it, this morning's time quote in the Word is going to feel like a classroom, but we don't mind. But it's the nature of the beast to be developed. Certainly, when we think about the book of Amos, a couple of things that pop into our head immediately. Number one, most likely for most of you, I know nothing about this book or about the person Amos. Um, that's not surprising. It is, after all, in part of the Minor Prophets. And, by the way, to the side, it's not called Minor Prophets because they're minor, minor significance. They're minor because they're the small books. Just so you're aware. However, because of two things, uh, primarily, the Book of Amos, as well as all the other Minor Prophets, are hardly ever looked at. Two major reasons why I don't want to look at small books. In an obscure time a long time ago. Correct? I mean, we're talking about almost 3,000 years ago, but not quite uh, 20, 2,600 and some odd years ago. By a relatively, not relatively, but a very obscure person, Amos. But secondly, typically we, we think of ourselves as being what, what is called the, what we label the church age and Amos is clearly written in the newer Old Testament. Old Testament, obviously, and therefore is considered to be something that probably is not all that applicable today. And I think that's our first mistake. In fact, I think it's a dramatic mistake. You heard me say this a long time ago, a number of times, I've not done it recently very much, but there is a school of thought in Christianity that sees what's called uh, an absolute discontinuity or disconnection between the Old and New Testament. And so the Old is the Old, the New is the New, we're New Testament Christians, and therefore the Old, for the most part, is not super valuable except for historical information. I take a position that although there is some discontinuity between the Old and New Testament, there's a whole lot more continuity than there is discontinuity. A whole lot more. There is, my view, I would argue, in other views, uh, there is a one big story flowing from Genesis 1 1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22. You've heard this term, it's God's historical, you remember the next word? Redemptive story, correct? Historical redemptive story. It's the story of God breaking through time and space, not just, and I don't know if you realize it, but not. Not just the incarnation, but breaking through time and space, communicating with man, bringing a story of 
man's redemption that starts out with the need for redemption, right? Yeah. Uh, but it even starts before then uh, in very important ways. We've got love and mercy and gracious power, spirit, and on and on. Just one to do. But it's this big long story that God is presenting, presenting in history, is what we call the historical redemptive story. He's presenting his story in history of his redemption of mankind to himself. Does that make sense so far? It is one big story that runs the entirety of all 66 books. It's told in 66 different flavors, if you want to put it that way, but ultimately it's the same flavor. It's the same story. It's different parts of the story told by different people from different perspectives, all the way up from the Old Testament to the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, and then in what we call the already not yet time frame, Acts through, except for specific pieces that talk about eschatology, through Jude, and then you have the beast of eschatology, that is the, the theology of end things, eschatology, and the book of Revelation, of course. So you have the entire story from the beginning all the way to the final consummation in all the 66 books of the as a story is told. Amos is part of that story. Now I'll argue a very important part of that story. And although we live in the already not yet time frame, Christ is found he is yet to come, correct? And they were living in the not yet completely. At the same time, the story of Amos in the historical redemptive story is every bit as important for us today as Genesis chapter 3. We all know that's important today, correct? Don't we? Amos is just as important. Now it's interesting, when we talk about Amos before we get into specifics, it is interesting that, I'll share this with Jim this morning, there's really only one group of and use the term very, very loosely, Christians who have enjoyed the famous or appreciated the famous. And that's the group, uh, at least in modern years. And that's the group the last 150 years ago. That's the group that we would call today either, either um, liberation theologians or we could, we could also add in there uh, more of the area of the liberal pastors, liberal churches. And what they do typically, they pick and choose within the storyline because they kind of feel that's pretty uncomfortable. You've read it all, you know it's very uncomfortable. But they pick and choose the very important points that Amos mentions about how the people are, are, are poorly treating the poor and the downtrodden. And they pick on that and if they see that, they grab that, they run with it, they miss the whole storyline. They don't see it within that historical redemptive story because they reject the historical redemptive story. They're more about what has been labeled liberation theology for taking care of the poor and downtrodden. Now, we will, as we work our way through, you certainly recognize Hayes' very good teaching on dealing with the poor and downtrodden. We'll put it in its context as well. We'll replace it in its it is what I would describe as covenantal context. That is very, very important. So there's, there's a number of things we want to talk about this morning. Again, there's a lot of background material here. I'm going to mention some scriptures, look at all the scriptures, clarification. So please bear with me today. Not a typical message. 
Um, I think it's important because the book is so foreign to us. And it's also foreign to us because it's written in Hebrew, not Greek, originally. And uh, we have it in English. Um, Hebrew, and the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew way of approaching things is very different from ours. And so oftentimes we get confused when we're reading the Old Testament and we really look at how to interpret the Old Testament, primarily it's in the poetic sections. And Amos, you know, there's a lot of poetry in there. And the reason why we do is because we don't understand Hebrew poetry. It's really important to do. Because God doesn't just choose the words to say, he chooses the style as well. Songs are ministered differently from from um story or narrative, correct? They're approached different genres as it were the same way. At the same time we acknowledge them by the understand in light of the way we go. We'll demonstrate that a little bit. But first, and you talk about the book of Amos, I'm going to talk first about verses, if I may. Let me just introduce the man Amos to you. Not a whole lot known about him. As a matter of fact, once you step outside and look at Amos, it becomes almost unknown and not really known. So there's a couple interesting things we can know about the book of the first Amos. I think they do come into play. There's 16 prophets in the Old Testament. Out of all of them, only Amos tells his occupation. Talks about his occupation. It's reading. His occupation is a herdsman and a grower of sycamore trees. Now, specific, I don't think it's anything specifically important about the idea that he is a herdsman or the idea that he grows sycamore trees. But the, the important thing, by the way, this comes up in Amos 7. If you go over to Amos 7, you'll see what I'm driving towards. Starting verse 10 of Amos chapter 7. Then Amaziah the priest, that's very important in the storyline, and Amaziah becomes very important by the way as well. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos is inspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos is said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah, verse 12, said to Amos, O seer, which is another word for prophet, O seer, go flee away from the land of Judah, oh, I'm sorry, away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there and prophesy there. We can say clarifies it later, right, right away. Verse 13, but never again prophesy Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. There's what, what the priest is saying, correct? The priest is telling Amos, leave Israel and go home. The home of Judah. We don't want you here. Verse 14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. Nor a prophet's son, prophet herdsman, and a dresser of sycamore things. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy go prophesy my people of Israel. Now therefore, and yet he is, you hear the word of the Lord. 
I'm going to finish up with chapter 7 just to give you a flavor. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. You get the idea that God's going on all the stops. We just read a short section. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from the land. What do we have in the section I just read? Here's what we have. It's very important. You've got, you got God calling Amos to go to Israel from Judah. We're probably worried about the Judah a little bit. Go to, go to Israel and prophesy against Israel. The priest, or to use the term, the professional, comes to Amos and tells him, commands him to leave. Amos then proceeds to do what? Tell who he is. Not a prophet, not a son of a prophet. God told me to come here. Listen, I was perfect. I was just sick of my baby. Okay. All I was. What did I say? It is an absolute condemnation, very important absolute condemnation on this. The one who's supposed to be presenting the word of God. The one who's supposed to be presenting the message of God to the people who are not doing it. And quite the contrary to doing it, he is acting not doing it, he's going further. He's telling the one who is doing it to do what? To leave. We don't want it. We don't have an effect. He said we don't want to hear a word from God. So his statement, I'm a, I'm a herdsman and a sycamore fig for terror. Very important. God's chosen people to present the truth are what? Are speaking the truth. Are what? For all intents and purposes, it's not a truth one, but it's still a Jew. That's how bad it is, by the way. You can put the lynch how serious the condition of Israel is. How much of a crisis this country is in work. So we have all the way through the game, we have this interplay between, between the professional and the person. The priest, the farmer. So we have this amazing contrast. And by the way, this is a freebie aside. Okay? This is a freebie. I'm going to throw this out here. One of the things that I love about the story of Amos this idea that I frankly get really tired of. I hear it all the time. I heard it when I was in my life. I heard it here, not just in our church, but in the ministry elsewhere. I hear it all the time. You realize that? Again, freebie, God uses who he chooses to use. It doesn't matter if you're a herdsman or if you're a priest or a king or whatever it is. God chooses to use who he you know, you know that, don't you? Moses couldn't speak. That means anything. 
Here we have demons. Be successful. I say, I bring this up as a freebie just to point out to you, don't ever think that uh, I'm just this. I'm just that. Okay, just a freebie. I'm just this, I'm just that. But I'm not, I'm not a professional. Or I'm not the one who's been seminary. Or I'm not the one who spends his lifetime searching the scriptures. No. No. But what there is that? Absolutely. God uses whoever he wants to He used Balaam's ass. Did he not? Hey. What is Amos? A little bit about Amos there. How about these about Amos? Only Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah and Amos, the book of Amos started out by the whole book by saying, This is the words of, in this case, Amos. Jeremiah, this is the word of Jeremiah. It's easy to go flying right by that and miss it. It actually is important to inspire word. We know ultimately it's the word of God, correct? But it's interesting that Amos starts out by saying the word of Amos. Why is that interesting? I think it's important because I think whatever, same way Jeremiah, when the the statement is made both times, it becomes really clear you spend your spend your time working your way through the English books that it's the word of God that's important. What God is communicating is important, but God is specifically identifying many different things about the person himself to bring to bear also the storyline. That makes sense? Some, sometimes the person writes it competing with the storyline, except that he's the writer of the story. But in this case, Amos, the person, his experiences, his perspectives, what he goes through, his circumstance he finds himself in, is equally important. It is by God's design that he wants the reader, the studier of Amos, to hear the word of God, but see God, God's word in Amos, and his situation and circumstance in life. He so, in other words, Amos' historical situation is valuable in the midst of the revelation as well. So we find out in the text of 7, chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, that God called this man Amos. <laughs> he was probably older in life. The implication of being a herdsman and a, care, a, a, a caretaker and a, a worker of, of a sycamore base is important to recognize that most likely means he owned the property. He owned the farm. He wasn't just a worker. So he's probably older in life, and he probably was, was pretty successful to have a multi-faceted uh, farm. Uh, it seems to say that it was a pretty successful farm. <laughs> but he was most likely very prosperous. <laughs> The last thing we find out about Amos is he's from a place called Tekoa. You see that right away in, in the beginning of the, of the book, verse 1. The words of Amos, the word, yeah, the word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa is a small little bird, or was a small little bird, uh, southeast of Jerusalem, in the wilderness, on the slopes, down towards uh, the Dead Sea. 
tough area to live. Full of ravines, full of wadis, which are which are seasonal streams that flow during certain times and don't flow at other times. So if you're a bird food that makes life really challenging to find your water at all times, you all your time looking for water. That's where you live. And of course, God calls you from that. And I do find it interesting. We don't know any of the background story. But I do think it's interesting. You find this pattern in the Old Testament, don't you? Where God calls someone and they go. You ever think another one like that? Abraham. Pretty clear, right? And Abraham, of course, not only does he go, he, he said this to him specifically, leave what? Sum it up. Leave what? Everything, right? Leave, leave everything except your wife. Head off to. Where? Sometimes I'll be showing you when you get there. And the scripture report to Abraham, Abraham got out of right? The implication being someone who is worshipful, submissive, responsible. Well, he had the same idea here. I don't know if the backstory didn't even put the sheep, but you know? We don't know. We can guess, we just don't know. What do, you, what do you do with the this, sycamore? This do you let the field, the sycamore tree fall overgrow? I don't know. The implication here is God told the going man. There's no implication there's a, a delay. God said go. Interesting picture of, of Amos, the initial glimpse. So that's all we know about, about the prophet. Basically, what is laid out in this book is that. Well, David's book is interesting as well. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the words of Amos, who, I'm sorry, who was among the shepherds of Tekoah, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Josiah, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. A couple things we get off of, off of that section right off the bat. Clearly, he identifies two kings, king of Judah, king of Israel, Uzziah, and Jeroboam. It's actually Jeroboam the second, but it's Jeroboam. His name was Jeroboam. There was Jeroboam before him, and then Jeroboam after father, son, next year. In any case, so he ministered in that time frame when both those kings, the north and the south, were ruling. The, the dates for that would be 767 to 753 BC. Those are absolute. If you're interested, again, 767 to 753 BC. However, we have one more piece of data he gives. You saw it already there. It says two years before the earthquake. That's interesting. It doesn't say two years before an earthquake. It says two years before the earthquake. And unlike Greek, the Hebrew has a definite article. So, that article is there. So, it's a, it, whatever earthquake this is, it was a really significant earthquake. And interestingly enough, it is documented by Zechariah over 100 years later about that earthquake. So, it must have been an amazingly significant, destructive earthquake. Over 100 years later, Zechariah mentions it. So it's two years before the earthquake. Interestingly enough, archaeological studies have found actual evidence of a major earthquake during that time. Surprise, surprise, right? So they're able to identify the time frame 
between 765 and 760. So it seems that Amos ministered somewhere between 765 and 760 that David took place. That's important because the prophecies of Amos come true almost immediately afterwards, but to his fullest fruition by 722 But almost immediately after he prophesies, it begins. And it culminates in 722 BC exactly what he described. The political situation of Israel at this point in time is especially interesting and confusing to people who live there. Jeroboam, the king of, of Israel, was a very impressive king. Before Jeroboam became king, Israel, the ten northern tribes, had had a lot of problems. They had had numerous wars, mainly with, with Syria to the north. And as a result, Syria, who was more powerful than they were, which was also, by the way, uh, used the term prejudgment of God, because God promised in Deuteronomy that if you are faithful with me, and you have peace on your borders. They didn't have peace on their borders, and so it was before Jeroboam second. And so what happened was, slowly but surely, Syria was, was just chipping away at their boundaries, and taking land, taking cities, slowly but surely. And then Jeroboam II finally rose to the, to the throne, and when he did, he was able to organize the people, and he was able to lead the people, quite charismatic uh, leader, and everybody began to follow him, and they went to war against Syria, and Syria was at this point in time a little weak, and the reason why they were weak was because Assyria, to the east of them, was becoming more strong. And because Syria was weaker, and Jeroboam was able to galvanize the people, they began to take back the land. They actually recaptured all the land that David had on the part where Israel was. All the land of David, King David and Catherine on the northern side, ended up being his kingdom, they were able to capture all of it. It was a good time for them. As a matter of fact, historically, it was, outside of David, probably the best time, politically, security-wise. They still had problems with Syria, but Syria had other bigger problems. <coughs> And so, although they, they still fought Syria regularly, they were able to hold them at bay and actually continue to take land. So it was a good time politically for, uh, for, for the ten northern tribes that we know as Israel. Now, still, it was still there, but there was peace. And interestingly enough, whereas there are other times when there wasn't this, at this point in time, Jeroboam, he was able to establish real good peace with Judah to the south. There was real friendliness between them. So much friendliness that they could travel through back and forth. And they travel through out of the country like they did. Israel wanted to trade with Egypt, for example. They used to go right through. The people of Israel would go right through and go on to Egypt, trade from that end without any problem. And vice versa. So there was peace and friendliness between Judah and between Israel at this point in time. And it was generally just a really positive time. Now, if you put yourself back in that time frame, it'd be easy to look at Amos as if he's got a screw loose. 
Because Amos comes up calling out the judgment of God, doesn't he? Right, Rusty? And pretty strong, isn't he? Everything appears to be so nice. Everything appears to be doing so well. Which seemingly is saying that God is what? Please and blessing us. What are you talking about, Amos? Look at how good things are. Look at how good things are, are have been. Look how we still a rosy future. Life is good. Then the political situation we find the people of Israel at that point in time. The book itself, if we may move away from the political situation, the book itself records Amos's ministry into Israel. Now, it's important to understand something. The book, for the most part, contains Amos's messages. He's preaching. He's preaching in a poetic form. Or if he's not preaching in a poetic form, at least it's being recorded in a poetic form. We have a poetic form. He may very well preach in a poetic form, or it may just be recorded that way. Either way, it doesn't matter. Um, but if he's preaching God's word, and the book of Amos is recording his messages. So when you read the book of Amos, you now there's obviously some exceptions to that there. When you read it, picture yourself. Listening to the preacher, in this case, farmer, who's also a prophet, the God of the prophet. The the book records the messages as primarily toward, by the way, primarily toward Israel. The tender of the prophet. We're going to more that just a little bit. That's a general statement about the book itself. Let's move on to the language style of the book. A couple things are very interesting about that. I said already the entire book is poetry, got a few little exceptions. It's, it's pretty much all poetry. Uh, purpose for the poetry is several fold. Poetry serves an aid to help in memorization, always has, always will, helps to memorize. But also, poetry serves the purpose of driving home very significant points. And Hebrew poetry is notorious for that. They, they, they structure their poetry in such a way that the main point they want to drive home is structured into the actual structure of the poetry. So um, that's really important. Classic Amos poetry is found in chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to try to help you see. Now, he doesn't use this exclusively, but it shows up really commonly. Notice chapter 1, verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors and the shepherds mourn, and the top of the Carmel withers. Now, if you have ESV, I just read word for word. If you have any other translation, some translations indent, others don't. Okay, it, it's good if they indent. It's a really healthy thing. It helps with things. You start to see the poetry indents. But you'll notice that. If, if you look at it, what you have here is you have four lines in chapter 1, verse 2. You have four lines, and in each line, you're going to find there's three things said. For example, the Lord, what? Roars from Zion. Three things. And then the next one, and utters. 
his boys from Jerusalem. Things again, right? And you go to the next line. The pastures of the shepherds mourned. Three. And the top one of Carmel to withers. Three. It's a classic structure of poetry. It's not like we think of poetry today. We think rhyming and things like that. But this is a classic Amos style of poetry. It's called a three-three poetry. Because what you have is you have three things in the first line and three things in the second line, they work together. Three-three. Even though we have four lines, in effect you have three-three, three-three. Or another way is three plus three, three plus three. They work together. Heard before Hebrew poetry, or Hebrew um, parallelism, you don't find any parallelism in, in, in Amos. But this 3 3 scenario, other times it goes 3 2. The 3 2 structure is called a lament structure. And Amos uses the 3 2 a lot to drive home the point of lament, grieving, sorrow, horror, and all the rest of that. There's other, other styles, but that's the general idea. There's one more interesting um, style of poetry that he uses that is kind of odd for us today. And it's found in verse 3. In verse 3, Amos says, Thus does the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not provoke the punishment. Then he goes on. Um, and he'll do that again and again. Verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not provoke punishment. You'll see that about five or six different times throughout chapter one. Kind of a weird statement. Someone talked to you that way, you think it's the wrong one, wouldn't you? What he's doing, what he's doing in Hebrew poetic structure and form, what he's doing is he's saying this is for three plus one. What he's saying every time is, it's complete. You are completely this. You are completely condemned. You, you, you have completely embraced the reason why you are going to be condemned. So he says, for these three reasons plus this one, it's like all encompassing. That makes sense? So it's important to hear it that way. That's the way it was Enough about the structure. Let's move to something much more important to see. The, the actual message of Amos. So Amos' role in these chapters when we go into the book of Amos was to go from Judah, eastern Judah, go up to Israel and bring a message. It is one unifying message given to many, many messages. The one unifying message and it's a crucial news. And it's new news. It's shocking news. The crucial news was that God was about to bring Israel to an end. It's not just a judgment like any other judgment. It's not like a discipline like any other discipline. Israel, the ten northern tribes, that kingdom is going to come to an end. It's over. is a very complicated message. It really is. For the Hebrew people, it's complicated. For us today, it's complicated as well. 
here's why it's complicated. It brings up really important theological questions. It brings up crucial questions such as, isn't God a promise-making, promise-keeping God? We said that here, haven't we? But yet he's promised in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, he promised what? That they would be his people forever. As he promised. And now he's saying to Amos, you're done. Israel is done. And I'm going to destroy it. Really important question. How can he be a promise-making, promise-making God? Or to put it a different way, how did God abandon his people? That's a really important question, isn't it? How did he abandon his people? Or to put it a different way, how could God not keep his covenant? Now, can I just say this as, as an aside, but really an aside? You do realize that we're talking about in Hebrews in a way, right? Didn't we? I see one person shaking their head, yes. We really did. Because, for example, does the Bible teach that uh, eternal security? Yes. Yes. What do we see in Hebrews? We see in Hebrews, there's some, it's not just in Hebrews, it's not the slave that we're in. What do we see in Hebrews? There are some people who ultimately aren't going to be saved. Did we see that? And he's not talking about pagans who are who, who never came to an understanding who God was. He's talking about people who tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He was asked. And he does that repeatedly throughout Hebrews. We saw it in John, where Jesus is talking about it, right? If you don't yield fruit, what happens? Fruit is from the fire, which is judgment. See, it's a constant, this is what I'm saying, is there's this, this thread in the historical redemptive story, it flows, doesn't it? Well, here you find it here as well, huge, important question. How is it possible God to abandon his people? There is covenant people. Israel is his chosen people, the Hebrew people, and now he's saying, I'm done with you. Here are very wise questions we're wrestling with. How is it possible? And what is the application that today there is? Along with this, you find the Amos is another question. And the other question is not addressed by Amos, although he, he, he referenced it. The other, and I find in some ways even more trouble and real, I may say as well, is that the people of Israel are questioning what Amos is saying by saying, what do we do to deserve this? What did we do? This is really harsh. What did we do? And, and, and the backstory of that is they're saying, in effect, look at all we've done. Look at all of our religious practices. We've kept the law. We've worshipped God. What do we deserve? What do we deserve? Deserve this? It's a huge question. 
It, it, it sets the mind to thinking, doesn't it? Jump into the New Testament for a second. What does it pop in the mind on that one? Anything? The New Testament? Let me help you. I'll prime the pump. There will be many. Lord, Lord, and he'll say what? The carpet never knew you, and then you say, but wait! What did we do to deserve this? That's what they're saying, aren't they? When they say, but Lord, we did all these things in your name. They're saying, what did we do to deserve this? What did we do to deserve this condemnation? And that's the horror of the book of Amos. The horror is not that, that Amos prophesied that it'll be wiped out. The horror is not the pain and suffering that you go through. That's what the horror is even in the midst of the prophecy, we don't see it. They don't see it. They think they're okay. They think they're doing well. They don't see it. And for them, especially for their sake, when we're so zealous, zealous. It's into this setting that Amos speaks. <coughs> and what he does, he carefully develops something very, very important. And again, you'll hear these kids over and over again. And it's important not just in that day, but in our day as well. He develops this understanding <coughs> of Israel's lack of covenant loyalty. Things look good. Things may very well look good on the outside, but they have an absolute lack of covenant loyalty. What he does, in effect, in the ninth chapter of the book, is he exposes the reality of their outward display. But what he's also pointing out is this. Yes, you have the outward display. <coughs> Covenant loyalty, or what's going on inside, fails or causes everything to fail. In other words, the way I put it is their outward display fails to make up for what is true of them. Or put it more specifically, an inward obedience to the law. They are doing things, a lot of things, and the outcome that is really good. And this sounds a lot like Moses. God speaking to Moses, I hear the words, and run over them, and I wish their hearts were. That's what we find in Amos. The heart's not there. It's interesting, Amos also, in his broad brush view of Amos' teaching in the Method of Amos, he also teaches accountability for those people who have been judged by God. He makes a very strong argument for accountability against those who are chosen by God. And his argument, let me sum it up, is this being in the covenant can never be an excuse. Being a Covenant person can never be excused. If anything, God deals more severely 
In other words, the way I think put it is God will always and must deal more severely with those whose disobedience is willful and Certainly those who have the covenant are disobedient, but the ignorance level is a lot higher. And if, if, if you're not sure, if you've read the book, you're not sure you see that, think about it this way. Their willful disobedience is clearly demonstrated on every page of the book. How is it demonstrated? They refuse to receive the word Amos, the prophetic word. There's not one moment in the book of Amos where the people, whether it's the leaders, the king, the, the, just the regular people, there's not a moment Evidence for the people to see the word. Embrace the word. How do you, how would you know if the people receive the word? What would be the what would be the, the key that would show that the people actually receive the word? Repentance. What do you say? Obedience would flow out of repentance. Absolutely. That's not what you see. As a matter of fact, there is at least one explicit call. Now before we move off of that, I do want to stop on that one for a second and challenge us all to think about this. Because it's really easy to read David and say, my goodness, those people, isn't it? For those who have read it, it's really easy to read it and say, oh my goodness, people are the world. Why don't they just receive it and repent? Ask yourself this. How often do we read the scriptures, hear the word preached, listen to the word communicated, whatever the case may be, and we don't repent? <coughs> Think about it. If what the scripture says is true, God is absolutely holy. Believe that? The scriptures also teach that man has fallen. Look at that. And not just fallen, he's completely fallen, isn't he? The scriptures also teach that man, even after salvation, still struggles with idolatry, still struggles with sin. That's why we're already not yet. We just probably simply be in that already. To be completely fulfilled in the Side of glory? I scream If that's true, it is. But maybe you know, Moses and little Tom, who you not written with him, but he said it numerous times, once again, he is my best activities since Christ. How can I ever read the scriptures? How can I ever listen to the word preached? 
How can I ever listen to the word just generally speaking on the CD or So the challenge right off the bat before we get into the book today is you ask yourself, what can I show how valuable the book is? It'll be a few words about how to catch it, I'll take it where you are. That's the strength of The reason why the remnant is faithful is why? 
God is faithful, absolutely correct, and in his faithfulness, he is good what? Rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness, making them alive, working their hearts, changing their hearts, so they love God, and they worship God, and they pursue God, and they repent. <laughs> that day is part Well, the quick flow of the book, the quick flow of the argument, of Amos' argument is this. Amos starts out by addressing the country, ready to know it, chapter 1. Don't listen to that, that's the devil. <laughs> Amos starts out in chapter 1 of the Bible by addressing other countries. Judgment is coming, Amos says, for Damascus, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammonite, Moab, and even Judah. Seven different nations. God, through Amos, declares judgment. However, the book and Amos himself and God are not concerned with them all the time. He mentions them. Now, Judah he is concerned about for a different reason. But the other six, uh, he's not interested. He just references them for a very, very important reason. Chapter 1 is very important. What these other nations are here for is to serve for, if I may put it this way, um, to set up the condemnation on Israel. You see, for for Israel, as they hear about these other six nations, they would sit there and hear that they're really wicked nations. They're all wicked, evil, idolatry everywhere, perversion everywhere, corruption everywhere. When Israel hears Amos start to speak in chapter one, you know what they're doing? They say, "Yeah, baby, go get them, God. They deserve to be crushed." Absolutely, amen and amen. You know, we have a New Testament equivalent of this. Anybody have any idea what the New Testament equivalent of this is? Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This guy's really about to be good looks. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to go over here and speak a little bit. Three more, three more. <laughs> no, in Romans chapter 1, God speaks through Paul to the Roman church, and he keeps talking about the sin in the world, and he's referencing it in third person plural. They, 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 they. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he changes it to second person plural, you. And he says, if you condemn them, you're just like them. And they all just did. They just did. That's exactly what Amos is doing here. In chapter 1, he lists these 600 nations plus Judah, and they are wicked. He describes how wicked they are. And Israel, you can hear it say, Yeah! In chapter 2, it's like, So it serves as the purpose of introducing the condemnation to the one person out of there. Is so that Israel will hear the condemnation. So, she, in effect, what Israel does then is condemn herself. And dramatic itself. One of the main reasons, there's a number of lists of Amos, but the main reasons why Israel is condemned by God. 
as described in, in Amos, is because they've ignored the provisions of the covenant. They've ignored them. Completely ignored them. Specifically regarding the poor and the downtrodden, as we mentioned here at the beginning. They've ignored them. They're not taking care of the poor and downtrodden. Now, that's just, those are just, when we say it this way, they're illustrations of a greater problem. He singles out a few random listing 800 different ways in which they're not keeping them. He singles out the ones that are very obvious. There's a lot of poor downtrodden in Israel, and everybody's ignoring them in a variety of ways. <coughs> and because they're ignoring the provisions of the covenant, they're now. The argument is this it's a very intriguing argument by God. The argument is this. When a people claim to love God, I was listening very closely. When a people claim to love God but ignore the very commands that are part of His character, how can they possibly claim to serve the God of God? Or to put it in a way. When people ignore the commands of God that exhibit and exude the attributes of God, what they're doing is they're evidencing that they're not what? They're not people of God. How could you how could you actually love God and, and deny his attributes? How could you do that? They should love God because you take word of John 3, I don't know how it's immediate, I didn't apply that if God doesn't change. If you love God because he first loved you, if you love others because God first loved you, then you're going to love others according to and, and with knowledge of who God is. Your love will evidence in an imperfect way, it will evidence the attributes of God. So how could someone claim to be a love of God, a covenant person, or the New Testament, a saved person, we can still use covenant person, but how could someone claim to be a covenant person and yet, not embrace the calls of God in our life that are directly tied to the actions of our life. We say it us. See, the only thing that makes sense if we really think about it is that if our impression was formative, if our love like God, I've been saved. But truly I've been saved. That means the Spirit is doing one of me. Sanctifying me, changing me, right? Making me more and more like the new Father God, John says, doesn't he? Well, if that's the case, wouldn't my activity begin to Wouldn't my manner of life, my walk, speak? begin more and more. Imperfectly, granted, because we're sinners, wouldn't we begin more and more to look like that? And then wouldn't we, as a result of being so grotesquely perfect in that process, would not we be more and more grieving over our lack of that? And would we not more and more be found crying out to God? Has his very attributes exuded my way to the past. 
Oh, yeah. That makes sense. It's his argument. It's a timeless, absolutely timeless argument. As a result, we're running way out of time here. Now, as a result, Amos then, as we work our way through the book, will turn to a series of pronouncements of judgment. I won't get into those right now. But then he gets to give a, a series of pronouncements of judgment, absolute judgment, very precise and specific uh, declaration of pronouncements of judgment. The idea in the later part of the book is this. Amos is in effect telling, telling the people of Israel, God will return to you. Interesting statement, interesting. God will return to you. But when he returns, he's coming to judge. And you will lose. And from there, Amos actually creates in the scripture here in the book a courtroom scene where officials being brought. Then from there, after the, after the pronouncements, Amos then proceeds to announce some woes. Turn, may not be familiar with some of you, but we've heard you talk about it before. Woes show up throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, Jesus uh, does it to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember that? Isaiah 25. Isaiah chapter 6. Woe to me, for I'm undone. Woe is me, for I'm undone. Here he pronounces woes on the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, which is especially interesting because woe is the beginning of a funeral dirge. He's already declared they're going to be destroyed. So what's, what's left to do? are singing the funeral song. Why? Because lack of repentance, they refuse to embrace the truth, and they begin to rebel until he pronounces woes. He begins to sing the funeral song. And after he finishes the funeral songs with woes, he then presents visions. Let's run through real quick. The first is the vision of locusts in the land. Locusts, landing the vision he has, locusts coming into the land of Israel and absolutely annihilating it, annihilating it. And he was praised. And God answers. He asks for help. He asks for relenting. A relenting God. In, in the vision, God relents. And then, all the locusts vanish. Think that means. God is a passionate God. Is he? God is a passionate, merciful God. But there goes the second vision. It's a vision of a fire that consumes everything. Once again, Amos prays to God the Lord's Third, there's a vision of destruction, the destruction of the worship centers as well as the king's rule. An absolute destruction of all worship centers and the king's rule. This time, the third vision, he doesn't do that. If he doesn't do that, God does not do that. The fourth vision is the vision of the plumb line. And if you're in destruction, you're a plumb line is. It shows how true something is. Correct? It shows how true something is. In the vision, God tests Israel with a plumb line. Guess what happens? 
Israel absolutely, resoundingly fails the test. If I may be comedic for a second, the wood they chose to use came from Lowe's. Those of you who use wood, Lowe's wood, no talking about No, seriously. They absolutely failed. They failed the test. And the point of that fourth vision is this. I have the mercy of the Lord. There is no mercy available. And number five, the vision of the basket of summer fruit. In the vision that Amos has of the basket, basket of summer fruit, the picture is of ripe fruit, summer fruit. Ripe. It's like beautiful fruit. You get the point? And normally you think that's a beautiful thing, right? A good thing? None in this case. The vision is presenting Israel as a basket of summer fruit. The idea is the nation is ripe for judgment. Ripe for picking in judgment. And judgment is sure to come quickly. Ready for this? The grand result of all these visions that Amos has is Amos' command of salvation. response to that is this. In the future, the people of Israel, the people of the nation of Israel, are going to have deep spiritual Deep spiritual hunger and deep spiritual thirst. And there will be nothing satisfied. Probably the most horrific statement And perhaps in the character. Certainly one of the most perfect. That there will come a point in time when the people of Israel will have this deep spiritual hunger and thirst. They will crave God. Not only The book wraps up. Now we're for the end, end chapter. And as Jim told me this morning, it ends up good. <laughs> the book wraps up with a really hopeful declaration. God will restore people. Amen? God will restore people in these three major points. In this final statement, God is sovereign. His intention is to destroy the sinful kingdom and they will be. Number two, the judgment with regard to individuals will be a sifting process. I like that term, will be a sifting process. What does that mean? It means the righteous remnant will be constructed. There will be a remnant, all of it is The righteous remnant will be preserved. Number three, third major point salvation gets announced. And it is announced as being discovered and experienced through the renewal of the law. It will not happen apart from a renewal of this kingdom that is not gone. Jews, the south, Israel, the north, all. 
And he develops further, he describes it as a time of great rejoicing and amazing joy. Actually, describes it as the Any value for this book today? Thank you. 
Thank you. 